So whatever I do, it's going to be my fault. You know, if I screw something up, it's going to be my fault. If I do something good, it's going to be amazing because this is something I decided to do and I made some decisions. Thanks for subscribing to the ZonCon podcast, the podcast all about Amazon conversations. These are the tips and tricks to become an Amazon millionaire. Here is your host, Andrew Erickson. He is all things Amazon, and so is this podcast. Let's have an Amazon conversation. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the ZonCon podcast. This is your host, Andrew Erickson, and I'm here with Yana Krakovich. And we're going to talk about doing translations and localizations for Amazon listings all over the world. Hey, Anna, how are you? Hey, Andrew. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, thanks for being here. You're coming to us all the way from London, right? Well, I'm actually right now I'm in London because I'm attending the, the Christmas party in London tomorrow. Super excited about it. But actually, I am based in Belgrade in Serbia. That's uh, Southeast Europe because everybody thinks it's Russia, but it's not. So <laughs> it's Southeast, Southeast Europe. But I've been basically living abroad most of my life. And, you know, this is actually how I got experience with Amazon and e-commerce and, you know, everything which has to do with online business. Nice. That's exciting. And so you're, you're at the London holiday party with Athena Cerveri, right? Right. With Athena and Danny. Yeah. Yana, I'm curious. You said you're a service provider. What kind of service provider are you? Well, we are an Amazon-dedicated translation agency, and we have a team of 42 people. We started just like, there were like five of us almost two years ago. So things escalated pretty quickly. And basically what we do, we provide translations, localization, keyword research, everything that sellers need when they go and try to conquer other international markets. So we basically get you ready for everything you need to get started on the international market, from listing translations with keyword research, customer support service, translation of your Q&As, follow-up emails, ads translation, basically everything you have in English and you need done in another language for another market, this is what we offer. We also do a little bit of copywriting for the European markets, but we mostly focus on translation because ever since I started this business, I wanted to niche down to only one thing. You know how they have like a lot of service providers, they offer like, you know, launches, CPC and everything. And I'm like, I don't want to like offer everything. I don't want to be like, you know, jack of all trades. I just want to be like, I'm going to offer one thing and we're going to be like experts in that field. And I got a lot of really good feedback because we were doing it that way. You know how when you first started, you're like, oh, probably this is not going to be a good idea. Who's going to hire me, blah, blah. But now I've got like a lot of good feedback from a lot of influencers from the, from the industry. And I'm really happy to stick to one thing and, you know, so like follow your guts. This is my tip to people, you know, do whatever you think you should do. Oh, I love that. And so are you the founder or the CEO or like Yeah, what? yeah, I'm, I'm the founder. The I'm the founder. founder. Okay. I'm a translator also myself, but I don't do any translations now. But I know actually how these translators, how they feel when they get hired and paid for like five cents a word or something like that. And I really wanted to, from the translator's perspective, I wanted to make like a really good service where also the translators will be happy to be part of as a really good team where they can learn new things or when they already come from the industry and have constant flow of work. And on the other hand, it's like a business owner who has like a solid business model and has the employees who I can trust because then basically I think about 30 people have been with us like for almost two years now, which is a very long time. So yeah, I'm really happy to have such a good great team of people. 
Nice. Oh, that's great. That sounds like you're a good boss if your uh, employees <laughs> have been around for that long. That's good. So uh, this is mostly translating English. Are you usually working with like American, or I should say English speaking people who are then translating into the mostly European countries? Yeah, mostly we work with the U.S. clients, U.K. clients, but we also have German clients who have their German listings to be translated to other languages. So we also, you don't have to have an English text. You can also have a German text as well. And we also, apart from European markets, we also do Japan and Mexico as well. Ah, great. I was going to ask you about that if you do Japan, because that's one of those markets that's kind of, at least from what I've heard, is kind of heating up. Yeah, it's quite big. It's very, very it's bigger than the German market, which is the biggest European market. Really? So, yeah, yeah. That a lot of people. It's a common misconception that people say that you know, a UK is the biggest market in Europe, but actually, it's German. German market is the biggest one, and also it's a very interesting thing that German market is considered to be like this like five star market. I like to call it that way because from all of the other countries in Europe which don't have Amazon marketplace. They are redirected and they buy things from Amazon Germany. So a lot mm. of people buy from that particular marketplace. So whenever anybody asks me, like, you know, Jana, like, what, where should I start? I want to do it in Europe. I always say Germany because it is the biggest market out there. And I think you can have a very, very good revenue over there. Yeah. But the Japanese market is definitely a very big one. But a lot of people are intimidated by the language barrier, you know, it's like different alphabet. It's like, you know, it's weird. <laughs> and your product has to be the right fit for the Japanese market because some things that work on the Japanese market would not work elsewhere. And when it comes to the German market, if you have like a product that's, that's selling fine with the U.S. market, it's probably going to do well on the German market. But for the Japanese market, you have to have like these, you know, let's say specific products that you know that people in Japan would love to buy, you know. So that can also be an issue. But once you have a bestseller for the Japanese market, you are just, you know, you can be like top notch. Like you can increase your profit in so much more than anywhere else because there are literally mm. not that many competitors. And a very important thing, PPC, like PPC, like click is like 50% cheaper than anywhere else. Oh, so wow. actually you'll be saving a lot of money if you want to maybe go there and try and the sellers complain about the time that you need to kind of, you know, ship the product over there. But it's basically like if you're, let's say if you're a European seller, it doesn't take any longer than if you want to ship the product to the States, you know. And plus, you know, if you want to register your brand, it's also like trademarks and stuff. It takes a lot of time to get it done, to be ready to sell in the States. But, you know, it takes as equal time when you want to ship it to Europe as a US seller or as anybody else to ship it to Japan. So it just takes basically equal amount of time. Sure. I mean, if you're sourcing from China, like Japan's way closer to China than the US is, right? Yeah. You know, I had some, a couple of sellers that they wanted to send their products from Europe because from the FBA storage and like, you know, they wanted to ship it to Japan because I don't think that anybody plans Japan as their first market is thinking that way, you know, to ship it directly from China. Maybe some people are doing, but with the sellers that we work with, they usually send it from the warehouse that they have other products stored at. So that, that can be a little bit problem. Yeah, so that, that's a great tip. So the Japanese market is very hot. I've heard that from multiple people. I've had some friends who've gone into it and they have said that you have to make sure that the product is a good fit. It is a different culture, different needs for products than it is in the U.S. 
So you have to make sure your product does fit. But I have some friends who've gone into Japan and they've, they're doing great. One friend has actually surpassed his U.S. sales in Japan. Exactly. Um, and he, yeah, um, that's it. he told me, and I, I don't know very much about the Japanese market, so I'm just parroting what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, he said that Japanese consumers really like kind of cutesy things. Kind of, yeah, uh, it's like you know, I mean, you know, they're like cartoons like Pikachu and uh, all these like weird little cute animals with like you know, blush like on their faces, like on their cheeks and stuff like that. So it's like super cute, like on the verge of being weird, uh, you know, and you know, like and you know, like how like some like we had one customer and he was like selling like a phone cover and it was a phone cover with these like pink bunny ears, but like in some crazy colors and it looked like Pikachu thing. And he was like, I think I want to sell this in Japan because like they were not buying it in France and like some other European markets, which absolutely makes sense because nobody's going to buy this in France, right? Maybe Chinese people or Japanese people living in France would buy those. But this is not a good target market for that sort of product. And yeah, and you know, whenever somebody sends me a product, I'm like, they're like, is this going to be a good fit? And I tell them, like, look, I mean, it might be or it might not be, but sometimes you can just get this product and you can tell to the, the clients, like, I think this is just going to work. You know, they like all this, like, translucent colors. They have, like, we were also selling some sort of, like, ninja gear in some pink, blue colors and some some sort of, like, protection kit when you, not to fall down where when you're riding a scooter or something. But it looks so weird and you're like, I think this is something they like in Japan, you know, uh-huh. it's a very product, which is gonna, you know, like you should always test the market where you want to sell these products at, because, you know, you should never like start selling somewhere without having any idea about what's good, what's not. And I always like to tell the example of Dolce Gabbana, like what they did. I mean, they did like such a stupid thing about, they tried to combine like Chinese and Italian culture, like all couture and I don't know, Chinese culture as it is. So they put up a promotional video. And on this promotional video, there was an Asian girl eating pizza with her chopsticks. And they thought it, like, Dolce Gabbana thought it was, like, this amazing, like, mind-blowing uh-huh. idea, like, right? But, you know, Chinese people, they got so offended. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you guys know that, you know, Chinese culture, they're very sensitive about their culture. And th- hmm. this ended as a disaster. And they banned Dolce Gabbana merchandise on all oh, whoa. in China. And it, it's such a disaster financially for Dolce Gabbana. They lost so much money and so much potential, you know, income from the whole, I mean, Chinese market is the biggest, you know, e-commerce market out there. And so they were banned just because of that, you know, and yeah. That also, blows my mind. Also, I, I get yeah. like from a business point of view, you don't want to offend them, but like that also blows my mind that the Chinese government would be upset about stuff like that. Yeah. And people were just super upset and this is what they decided, you know. And I remember also this example about, you know, I mean, this is something which happens to like very, very big brands. And I was very surprised because, you know, it's not like, you know, you should have known better. I mean, you are freaking Dolce Gabbana, right? You are not like a local store who wants to sell their own handmade t-shirts or something like that, right? I mean, you're a well-known world brand. And also something like that almost happened to Kim Kardashian. She was about to launch her sheetwear, which now has a different name. And she wanted to name it, but she was just literally about to launch it. And she decided to name it Kimono. Oh, yeah. And then Japanese mayor was like, "Uh, no, you're not going to, you know, do that. This is like a national attire. You're not going to like pin it to your, you know, shapewear. And then they they, they had to stop. Because a kimono is... 
a kimono is kind of like a coming of age dress. It's a very ceremonial, like a uh, yeah. It's a very ceremonial, like traditional Japanese attire. It's like worn by men and women, and it's very you know it's one of the national identities that people it depends like their legacy, right? Literally, you cannot take the name of that and put it on your. And plus, it's shapewear. You know, it's not even dress. It's something that goes like on your body underneath your dress. So it's not like really something which is flattering you know like to to be named after that you know i mean i get it like kim own it, it's cool right i mean but you know somebody 500 centuries ago <laughs> thought of their name first you know so and then she had to change the name you know and my wife is a guilty pleasure obsessed with the kardashian family she oh, probably won't like that I out of her on the podcast, but she's obsessed with them. So I've heard, I've heard all the gossip oh, about yeah. the Kimoto, and, and she changed the name to, not Skin, but she changed it's it to something else. I forgot. I forgot the name. I was trying to remember, but it's like something short. And uh, I think I it's Skim. It. Skims or something. I don't know. Something silly like that. Yeah, yeah. Something like short like that. Yeah, I cannot remember it right now, but Skims. 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 Yeah. That did, yeah. So, I, used so to, that... I used to watch Kardashian the whole time, so yeah. <laughs> You, you did or you no, no, no. I used to watch it like oh. when it airs the first time and then I will watch a rerun like in the evening. Uh. I was like <laughs> seriously obsessed and I know I went to New York this was like I don't know like seven eight years ago when they opened that dash store of theirs and I waited in line with like I don't know 100 other teenagers losing it over seeing Khloe uh. Kardashian in the store you know <laughs> I was one of those people you know so I totally understand like the obsession with everything. I, yeah, but that's what I was also like very happy to hear that I can use Kim Kardashian as my example <laughs> for the Amazon, you know, story. <laughs> yeah, I, sometimes when I'm looking over our uh, bank statement, whatever, a credit card statement, it's like, what what was forty six dollars on iTunes? And she goes, uh, that was the last season of the Kardashians <laughs> that I bought. I'm like, you paid money for that? Like, you should at oh least rip God. it off. But <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, but I, I mean, I, I totally get it. Yeah. So that's a good way of talking about localization. It's a good segue into localization. So uh, I know translation isn't just straight up like translate word for word. That's silly, of course, because it doesn't make sense if you translate word for word. When we do localization, you kind of incorporate a little bit of the culture and the words that they use. So tell me exactly what does it mean to do localization? Well. Let's say, for instance, I like to compare the U.S. market and the German market, right? So U.S. market and U.S. listings are very salesly. They have this, like, sales pitch and bullets, you know, like, buy, 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 come buy our product. Our product is, like, super amazing. It's super cute, adorable, whatever, buy our amazing product, right? This is, like, U.S. style. Whereas in Germany, nothing works like that. They don't like to be pushed to buy a product. They don't want you to tell them that their product is amazing. They want them to be the judge of that. Like, I'll be the judge of your product being amazing or not because I'm going to buy it and try it. Also, they want everything to be, like, very clearly written, very transparent. Like, tell me the ingredients, how I use it, is it safe for my kids? Very, very clearly written. Nothing more about, like, metaphors, like, words, play words, you know, stuff like that. It's basically, depending on the product, of course, if you're saying, like, a plushy bear, of course, it's going to be a little bit more cute. But it's not going to be as much as it is in the States. And I always like to give an example about what one listing we did is an espresso cup. And like the U.S. listing would be something like, you know, keep your fingers warm like your grandma used to do, something like that. You know, it was 
and German translation is like thermal isolated glass. <laughs> you know, like this is what you get. Or you know, the US would be like warm, warmer, warmest, like your grandma used to. I don't know what. And they're just like elegant and stylish and fits you well. You know, this is like fits you well. This is kind of their way of saying, you know, the super cute granny story, right? So really depending on the, the, mm. the product and to what extent this goes to, but usually it's all about like literally written descriptions. It's like very, you know, transparent, basic, you know, tell me what I'm buying. This is what they want to know. Don't push me into buying and don't go all cute on me. And also German market, it's also like when you do business with the Germans, you know, it's pretty clear and strict and like, I tell you what to do and you deliver that to me. I like working with German clients because so they will know what they want. And it's actually, you know, what they want. This is exactly what you tell them. Like, that's it, you know. But, and also it's a very interesting thing that on the German market, German Amazon, they give the most refunds from all of the markets, worldwide markets. Because if you tell the German seller, like, I don't want this product because I don't know why, they're like, fine, here's a refund. You know, like, this is what I say. And like, then he's going to do whatever, you know, ask him to do. So refunds are like a big deal in Germany because you get a lot of refunds there. That's an interesting fact. But usually that style has to be implied if you want to do like a good listing because you cannot just literally translate everything you have like from the US market or the UK market as well. They also have their own style. And, you know, you just you kind of translate it and think that that's going to work. Of course, if you have a really good product, it's going to sell anyway. But just think of how much more you can do if you have a properly localized listing with keywords. And, you know, if you pay more attention to that, it's definitely going to help you. It's not going to, you know, hurt the product or in your sales or anything like it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that it's always hard to kind of know who you're talking to and how to talk to them. And especially if you don't speak the language, right? And you're not part of that culture. Western culture is pretty similar in a lot of ways, especially like yeah. the, the richer Western European countries I found to be pretty similar to the States in a lot of ways. But there's also, like you mentioned, a lot of differences in how some of the things that they like and some of the things that they dislike. So that that's really interesting. I'm curious, like, give another example of maybe another market that's not Germany that kind of has a like special localization thing. Well, I would say the, the UK market, you really have to pay attention to, you know how like, you know, ever since I landed here, it's like, oh, they're so nice. They're so polite. They're lovely and everything like that, you know, and they use... Quite words. lovely. Quite we always, lovely. We always yeah. made fun. We were in the UK. And it was, oh, so it's quite lovely. And so my wife and I always go, quite lovely. <laughs> yeah, I know the lovely, lovely thing is, you know, and I'm, and I'm just like, oh my God, why is everybody so freaking nice over here? <laughs> that's like, you know, like the U.S., like when you go to the store, like everybody's nice and smiling. But this is like a different level of like being polite, right? So, and they use different, like the sentence structures are quite different. You know, it's kind of more of a, you know, British, you know, like explain that. And also <laughs> like they use, they use like the different names for certain things, you know, like fanny pack, like they don't, you know, it's different. Or uh -huh. <laughs> it's important because if you do keyword research, you want to do it for the UK market because if you're going to use a different word for that, you can get that also ranked, but it's not actually how you want to call this product, you know? And also like we wrote the note here, like spelling, stuff like that. You really want to kind of do your best, you know, when you're like in, on the UK market. What does fanny pack mean in the UK? Fanny pack is... <laughs> I know it means something kind of bad. That's why I asked you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Fanny pack 
I just can't remember. It's a dork. Yeah, it means a dork. Oh, a dork. Okay. Yeah, but a fanny pack also is, what do you call, you know, the little bag you wear, like a waist bag. Yeah, well, so I know what it means in American English. Yeah. I've been told that call, fanny yeah, yeah. is a word for female anatomy and that yeah, fanny pack means. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. yeah, fanny pack is, yeah, that, that's what I meant. In English, like American English, fanny pack is that, but for the same thing, like the fanny pack, they use a different word on the UK market. They don't say fanny pack. They, I think they say something else. And fanny also means like something, which is like a female genital, something <laughs> like that. Yeah, you know, it's like, it happened the same, like when they, with the Hyundai, the, the car dealer, well, the car brand, sorry, the car brand, when they produced like this new model and it was called the Hyundai Kona. And then, you know, Kona in Portuguese means female organ. Right, uh-huh. and then they had to kind of stop, like you know, producing the Hyundai Kona, and they made it the Hyundai Kauai. So they took a different uh, Hawaiian island, which didn't have any meaning in Portuguese. You know? Ah, nice. So, That's good. So last week we were at a friend's house and she had some of her Australian friends there, and we were just talking, and someone brought their dog over, and and we were talking about. Uh, my wife says, "Oh, I really want a golden doodle." And the Australians go, what? What? What do you want? She goes, a golden doodle. They go, what? What does that mean to you? And she goes, a golden doodle. It's a golden retriever mixed with a poodle, a golden doodle. That's just what they call it. They go, oh, oh okay. Right. Because in Australia, uh, doodle means labradoodle. We also have that. Yeah, that's that's basically the same thing. But like, one's a golden hey, hey. retriever, one's a lab, a golden lab, right? And so you get a lab right, doodle right. or or a golden doodle. But apparently, doodle means like male anatomy. And so, like, I want like a gold dick, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember how you say the fanny pack. It's the burn bag. Burn bag. Okay. Burn bag in British English. They also call it a burn bag. You oh. Know, if you said the burn bag, like in the states, it would be like. What you know? I mean, I would not have figured out that. I, you know what that means to me? If I, if someone mentioned a burn bag and pointed at that, I would assume that they it was filled with drugs. Yeah, yeah, burn bag. You know, it's yeah, like like, like, like I'm, gonna, I'm smoking or... something or yeah. <laughs> what you got in your burn bag? You know, it's like. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I know another thing we have an issue with is keywords. And for right. me, I know even in American English, it's very difficult to figure out like what keywords, because some words, they, they basically mean the same thing. But when you search on Amazon for like this keyword, you bring up a whole different, you know what I mean? Like it means something slightly different and the results are completely yeah. different. And so one thing, it's very difficult finding your best keywords, even in American English. And when you do the translation thing, like it's very, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Like a lot of people like just use Google Translate and they're just going to take their U.S. keywords and just translate it to, let's say, German, for instance. And they're like, okay, this is good enough. Right. But, you know, a lot of times, I mean, Google Translate has come a long way, how it was like 10 years ago and how it is right now. Because right now it's actually sometimes it really does a good job. But what Google Translate doesn't know, like, he doesn't know what context, right? So it doesn't have any, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that, like, one paragraph is going to make sense with the second one at all, because it just, you know, makes no sense. But when it comes to keywords, I would never recommend using Google Translate, because what happened to us, we're just uh, making this as an example for one of my presentations, which actually was a feedback from our client. 
because he was selling, it was like a kitchen sink, like a, a kitchen faucet. So in Google Translate, he put faucet and he got Rubinetto, which is actually faucet in Italian. But if you type Rubinetto on the Italian market, you're not going to get the kitchen sink you want to sell. You're going to get something completely different. And actually, like the proper keyword that Amazon was using for this was Miscalatore Lavello or something similar to that, which is like nothing to do with the Rubinetto, right? And then when you would put this Miscalatore Lavello, you would actually get a kitchen faucet, what he wants to sell. So sometimes, like, don't be fooled by, you know, like the actual correct translation will translate because when it comes to keywords, it doesn't necessarily have to mean anything. As you said, you know, the, uh, for the U.S. market, if you type something, it doesn't necessarily mean that that product is going to show up. Maybe, you know, people use that for something else. Maybe they use it in backhand, so you don't even have them in that product. So you really have to pay attention to that. And, you know, if you don't want to spend any money on any professional service, I would always suggest, like, to ask. I mean, a lot of people have, like, friends and relatives and, like, who speak this or that language. Just ask them, like, hey, how would you call this product? Like, how would you name this product? Like, you know, tell me a couple of keywords, like, not keywords, because they don't know what the keywords are, but tell me a couple of, like, word combinations. And you can try some of them on Amazon, and I'm sure that some of them will work. And then you can just take it from there because, you know, when you do the magnet research, for instance, in Helium, if you put like something which is fine, those top three products are going to show up. And if those top three products are actually the product you want to sell, then you're on the right track and then you can just, you know, do the reverse ASIN and, you know, everything else. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I know I've asked a few friends to help me with stuff, but even that, it's still a challenge because I was trying to do like the Spanish translation of my listing and I just had a couple of friends who speak Mexican Spanish to help me with the translation. And they said the same thing. Right. They're like, well, Mexico and Spain are pretty different. And we can't really, yeah. we can proofread and make sure that the words are actually spelled correctly. But in terms of like actually going after it, it's, it even that's kind of hard unless you have someone from that particular region. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you have like, I have a lot of the translators apply like from Cuba, from Peru. And I mean, there are like so many different like versions of, you know, Spanish. And for instance, we're doing Spanish from Spain and somebody who's like from Latin America, they cannot do the Spanish from Spain because there are some differences. There are some like, you know, like dialects in every language, but, you know, I cannot expect this person to know Spanish in Spain, you know? So, you know, if you want to hire someone and we're going to sell it in Mexico, just be sure that this person is from Mexico, actually. And it's, you know, like not, I mean, okay, so fine. Like you're a native speaker, like you're an English native speaker. But would you hire yourself to write your own listing, like copywriting? You know, like a lot of people who are native speakers are not that good in like copywriting or not necessarily good in like English grammar or, you know, it's because you're a native speaker doesn't mean you're an expert in that language, actually. So you really want to hire someone who's like done some translation or copywriting to make sure that, you know, he knows how to write, how to write a decent sentence. I think that's really important. And just people just want to, you know, they just want to, hire somebody on Fiverr, oh, fine, he's cheap, let me hire him, right? And as I said, I mean, listings, I mean, are important, but I mean, if you have a really good product, you're going to sell that anyway, right? But what if you had just did it everything the right way, you know, how much more you, you would be able to, to make and like the profit and revenue and everything. And we had a client recently, she was in the pan-European thing for the, so he was selling what like, all Europe. And the thing is that his product was so cool. He was basically one of the first people who sold that on those markets. So he basically didn't have any competitors, maybe like one or two. And there was way less than he had in the States. 
and basically he ended uh, uh, like he was a he was, was a really he was a San Diego seller in the states, but he actually made exactly the same revenue he's making in the states in Europe for less cost of PPC and like he doesn't have any competitors like that like that, that were in the states, and he actually made what well, he was like seven figure also in Europe. So I'm saying that you know even if you are not that successful in U.S. I think if you do do a proper market research and see a lot of people selling your product, you know, you can make more profit and scale your business easily in Europe than you can on the US because everybody wants to sell the US is the biggest market. And of course, you know, it's, it's a challenge. But I'm saying that if you're very, very, if you're really struggling with everything on the States, maybe you can go and try the European market. I think that's the worth a shot. Yeah, that's a good point you make. And I'm curious, let's say that we have gotten our listings translated and we're, we have inventory and we're doing the whole everything in Europe. Day to day, how do I manage my PPC and customer emails? Because I've found it difficult and I'm sure other people will find it very difficult. Like, again, with the translation issues, like how, give me advice on that. Well, we don't do any PPC, but we work with a partner agency and we usually just send them a list of keywords they can use in their PPC campaigns. So maybe this is something which people could also do because, you know, if it's a good keyword research, then it's going to be in the listings backends and you can use it for your PPC campaigns. Unless you're absolutely sure that those keywords are good, I would not suggest you doing that by yourself because I think it's very important that from the start that you know what you're doing. And you know how Amazon gives you like this, like a honeymoon, you know, period, like at the beginning where you actually get kind of more than you deserve. And you know, if you waste that time, it's not going to, it's going to be so much difficult to come back to that first stage or wherever you were. If you start with being relevant for irrelevant terms, you don't want actually in your, in your campaign, like this guy with the faucet thing, he would have used Rubinetto and that would not have, you know, given him what he wants because when people would type Rubinetto, his product would show up and they don't want to buy that actually. So he would have a lot of impressions, but his click-through rate will go down. And once Amazon finds out that you're not relevant for this search term, they're gonna just gonna move you. Like you know, we want to say like where to hide the dead body. You know, page two. And, <laughs> you know, basically very hard, hard work, a lot of money and effort to get back to where you should have been at the first place. And what about customer emails? I mean, I do you have any advice on how to handle customer emails? Well, usually, for instance, like we do customer emails, and a lot of people will hire us for that as well. So you can basically, but for customer emails, you don't have to hire like a professional service. Like I think for for that, I think you can just hire anybody that knows language and everybody can handle that because you can tell them what to do. You don't have to have any keywords or anything. You just have to have someone who's a native translator and he can do the job. So you can outsource that to anyone. You can find Upwork or Fiverr or anywhere like it. That's not that difficult. And I think a lot of people could manage your customer emails. Okay, let me tell you how I did it. You can tell me if I did it right or wrong. (laughs) So we don't get a lot of emails. We get like three or four emails a week. So it's not too much of a concern for us. But what I did is I have kind of like an FAQ for our US emails, right? So where is my thing? You know, the thing is chipped. The box is open, whatever. There's like, there's this like the five questions that ask over and over and over and over again, right? And so we took those five questions and all had them them all professionally translated. Translated, yeah. That's cool. And so we had those five translated. And then uh, the way I told my assistants who handle the customer emails is just take 
whatever someone oh and another thing too that you're going to get in europe that you're not going to get in the u.s we get a lot of is they want receipts for that and Mm -hmm. so the stuff like that like there's some things that don't apply in the u.s that apply in europe right and so we had them all translated and i told my assistants like okay what you need to do is just take whatever they've sent you and send it through google translate and then you'll get the gist of what they're saying and then if it's part of that faq just paste that faq in but if the FAQ doesn't, you know, the professionally translated FAQ, if it doesn't translate or if it doesn't fit the FAQ, then write your response how you would in the U.S., translate it through Google again, back, okay. back you know, reverse translate, and then paste mm-hmm. both the English written part and the Google translated. That way they can kind of, in case the Google translates garbage, they at least might have, I know a lot of Europeans speak English decently, speak it okay at least. And so we post both of those just to kind of give them some options. What do you think about that strategy? Well, yeah, I agree about the strategy about, uh, with the templates because that's actually what we do, but you need more kind of input. You need more questions. So we have this for a couple of categories, but these is only possible with clients who have a lot of questions for months. So we, I mean, talking about not the customer emails, but we do customer support of the comments you get like under reviews. So this is what we take care of. It's like you get an response for a couple of hours. So for this, we made a template, but you have to have a quantity of questions. So you see what repeats, what does not repeat. And then easily you can hire like a Filipino to call it a copy paste it, right? It's not a problem. The problem is like when you have like so many different categories and then you don't have this ready. So what you did was very good. I mean, the templates, you know, like what's your address, where is this? It's going to be shipped in five to seven days or some other standard answers. But I'm not sure about Google. I mean, I think Google Translate really depends on the language. Also, because like, you know, German has like a lot of different articles and usually Google Translate gets them all wrong, always, mm. you know, always like the word and the sentence structure also kind of because like for instance, German language has this thing where usually the verb comes at the very end. You have to kind of wait for the whole sentence to like, what am I doing? You know, like, then, like <laughs> open the window, not close it, you know, just going to wait till the end. And Google Translate kind of the sentence structure, a lot of cases stays the same as it is in English where you have like the subject, the verb, and then the rest of the sentence. Well, as in German, if you have two verbs, one comes in front, and then you wait till the sentence will be paced with the last one. And that kind of, you know, that always is the problem when you're using Google Translate because they don't feel the sentence structure of another language. But I think if you have like a really super simple questions, like what color is the product? Like my product was green and you said it was going to be yellow. What's the problem? And then, you know, if you can write a short answer, I think it's fine to use Google Translate that, that way. Don't use Google Translate when you don't know, like, write an explanation, like five rows explanation. I would not use Google Translate for that mm. because I said it doesn't Point. know it's a context, right? But for short answers, I think you can be fine, you know, with the short answers, which are not too complicated, like, you know, a simple sentence, like stating five words. Good. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. That's a good point. Short answers make sense, but like a long explanation. So if you're have something yeah, sort of technical, yeah, yeah, something technical, like maybe car part that needs to be installed in a certain way, it's Google Translate's not going to cut it. No, I wouldn't say so. Like if you want to know how to turn on your washing machine, it's definitely going to help you, but I would not rely a hundred percent that Google Translate like tell you how the exact directions are. Because I, I mean, I speak a couple of languages, but I don't speak a lot of other languages. And I get this like instruction manuals and stuff like that. I would put it in Google Translate and I'm like, let's just try to find a YouTube video on this. You know, uh-huh. I'm like, I'm not sure. And this is also how people like when you sell a product on the German market, 
let's say you have like this poorly written listing. It doesn't make much sense. It's a machine translation. Like Amazon Launchpad, which was used by so many sellers, it was a machine translation, right? And then like you just kind of read this translation and like, uh, I'm not sure if I understand what I want to say. Let's move to their competitor. And mm. I also read in, in the, the Harvard Business Review that 56.2% of people buying things online, they evaluate language more than they kind of pay attention to the price. Mm. So actually, if the cheapest products over there, like on the French market, for instance, you have like four diaper bags and one diaper bag is written in English and it's the cheapest. What I've seen is like this product had four star reviews and all other products which were more expensive, but written in French, they had more reviews than this product even though this was the cheapest one, but people didn't understand, especially if it's like products for kids and stuff like that. They want to know if this is safe, you know, is it like, or plastic, is it BPA free? You know, like what are the ingredients and stuff like that, you know, and on the German market and generally in Europe, a really, really good category are kids products, you know, like everything which comes from face paints to glitter, crayons, like DIY kits for kids that sells really, really good. And people really want to know like what's in these products and how to use them. Like is it safe for kids and stuff like that. And I think that's very, very important to be very transparent when it comes to that and not uh, be unclear about the descriptions and the usage of products and similar things. So Yana, I'm curious, you are a big badass boss lady who has a team of <laughs> 40 plus international people from all across the world. Why do you do this? Why are you building this business? Why do you do the things that you do? Well, honestly, I was working for this biggest e-commerce in Denmark for about eight years. And I was also CEO at the end. And I had, honestly, I mean, I had to brag a little bit. I had so many good ideas, but my boss was just like, no, we're not going to do it. If you do a good thing, nobody appreciates you. You don't actually get any I mean, I, I'm not talking about like money-wise. It's just about like, you know, somebody telling you, hey, this was a really good idea, good job. I really like the way you're thinking. I never got this job. It was a really good job, but I just felt so underappreciated. And I always wanted to do my own thing. I always wanted to like start something which has to do either e-commerce or something that I know what I'm talking about. So I just decided to quit my job about three and a half years ago. And that's been like the best decision ever. Of course, like my mom and all of my friends, we mentioned at the beginning, they were kind of freaking out because, you know, how am I going to find a real job with only e-commerce knowledge and Amazon? Like, you know, what the hell was <laughs> I thinking? Am I going to starve to death? My mom was like, are you going to move in with us again? You know, like she was like, she was like really mean. And, <laughs> and then like, it was, I mean, it was hard. Like for the first six, seven months, I was a corporate person, like going to the, going to the office every day from nine to five, you know, I had like, you know, skirts and like high heels, makeup and stuff. And then all of a sudden I was at home in my PJs like the whole day. And that lasted for like three weeks because I'm like, what am I supposed to do now? And then I'm like, okay, I have to like get your shit together. And this is what you wanted. So come on and pursue it. Right. And so I came to the idea that I want to be, you know, my own boss. And so whatever I do, it's going to be my fault. You know, if I screw something up, it's going to be my fault. If I do something good, it's going to be amazing because this is something I decided to do and I made some decisions. So if it's going to be rewarding, it's going to be like beyond, you know, the rewarding I can usually get with working with someone. Or if I screw up, it's going to be very, very horrible because I'm the one who's going to be to suffer and I'm going to be the one to blame for my own mistake. So, you know, that was kind of really, really hard. And then 
the beginning, I was like, dead, I'm not going to do this anymore. Let's go back to the office and stuff. But then like when you get an appraisal or some like affirmation of what you're doing and some good feedback from your clients, I'm just like, you know, I'm like, I grew like 35 centimeters more. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing, you know? And this is what I'm doing that because actually this is so rewarding when you're a business owner where there are your ups and lows. But I think that the ups are more, you know, like positive. And there's like, you know, if lows are 20%, when you do something right, it's 80%. And I just feel good about myself and I feel more confident. And, you know, I think that everybody, if you set your mind to it, I just think that you, you can do it. And I think that people just have to go outside of their comfort zone and just, you know, because I don't think anything that happens inside of your comfort zone. And I was thinking also of like having like a side business, but apart from like what I was working with this big corporation. And then the first time I could actually do something and scale the business was when I quit my job, because then you don't have any other choice. Then you have to focus on this new thing you're doing. And this is the only way how you can actually scale your business. Because if you're playing it safe, you're not going to do anything amazing, like the side job or hobby or anything else. Then it should be a hobby and you should not have any expectations and not lose your time. Because, you know, I, I just feel sorry because I'm 34 and I just feel sorry because I was, I was not like 20 when I figured this out, you know. Because like if you see like, you know, like all these like IT like moguls and like uh-huh. kids with ideas. And they're like, oh, she's 19 and like freaking billionaire. And I'm like, why wasn't this me, you know? But, you know, for me, it took some time and courage and guts because I was freaking out. Like I should have quit my job like six years ago, but I just did not have the courage to do that. And especially because, you know, my friends and family, they're like online business is such a BS business. It's like, well, what is this? You know, I didn't have actual support. So, you know, I think you should just find somebody who's supportive and who understands you. Go to the events, you know, hear other people's stories and mindset and just like soak up, you know, just kind of try to get the most out of it. And, you know, if you're always going to be a business owner or do your own thing, you just have to do it outside of your comfort zone. Honestly, I think that's a very, very important thing. That's a great, that's a really good why. So the big reason, I guess, is that you want the mistakes to be your mistakes and the wins to be your yeah. wins. Yeah, yeah that's great. exactly. Yeah. Do you find that it's scary sometimes, though, that there isn't someone else to blame, that it's, it's all falling on your shoulders? Oh, definitely. I have All like the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have, and I have a really fresh example. So we were just exhibiting at this uh, White Label Expo in London. It was a really, really big expo. It was the first time for us as exhibitors. So I got this like five panels from my booth. Five, it was like a one picture divided in five different panels and you have to glue it. And I decided to do that in Serbia because it was like thousand euros cheaper and I brought it and I'm like, I'm going to take care of this. I had two more team members with me, but I was the one to decide which one goes first, like which is the first part of the picture. And I glue it wrong and it was my fault. And my picture, instead of like having this like nicely shaped triangle, which goes from low to up through these five pictures, it was like zigzag like this uh-huh. because I glued the first picture myself. And my two other members were like, let's just, you know, let, let's just double check. And I'm like, no, I know which comes first. I was like really pissed off that day. Everything was, you know, kind of everything went wrong that day. And then I'm like, I'm going to use this and put it right here. 
And then we put the second one. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and I was like so, so pissed off. And I was like really annoyed by myself at that point. But, you know, and I could have said like, it's your fault. You told me to, you know, but I'm like, it's my fault. And, you know, like I should have double checked this. Of course I should have done that. But it glued the thing like that. And that also happens with clients and some like more important stuff like when it comes to you know projects and like you know sometimes it happened like uh, like a year ago that I forgot to post the project to my team and I told the client that we're gonna do it you know by like tomorrow at that point and they had like a week to do it if I pasted that the, the day that I wanted and then I realized okay like you know I'm screwed and like it's my fault so I'm probably gonna pay triple the fee to these people so they can finish it till tomorrow I will be losing money, but it's my fault. And I mean, this is some responsibility that you have to be aware of that, you know, okay, it's my fault, but let's learn from the mistakes. And from some mistakes, I still haven't learned and I still do them, but, you know, baby steps. And I'm, I'm really happy where I am right now when compared to two years ago, you know, so. Yeah, I love that mentality. And that's one thing I think that is a really good takeaway is that when you make mistakes, they're, they're lessons, right? Yeah. And I always think that every mistake I make when there's a dollar sign on it, I'm like, okay, that's the tuition I paid for that lesson, right? <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it yeah, helps. Exactly. It helps get around that kind of failure mentality. Unfortunately, I mean, I love formal education, so don't get me wrong, but there is that mentality of like when you, the worst thing you can possibly do is to fail a big F, right? Big red F, you're a failure. You failed the grade. It's really embarrassing. You should never, ever fail. I think it's a whole mentality. You should fail, fail quick and fail cheap. Absolutely. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And I don't remember it was a, I read this somewhere because like the whole school system is wrong because they tell you that if you fail, you're not allowed to do this ever, ever, ever again. And like all of these like amazing entrepreneurs from history, you know, starting from Tesla and like everybody else. They're like, when you fail, you get up. And, you know, like so many people filed for bankruptcy and they built all again from scratch. And they should teach kids in schools that if you fail, it's fine to try again. And you should not be discouraged or ashamed because you fail. Because a lot of people, they just feel ashamed and they never want to do that again or ever. You know, and if we had it in us that, you know, it's okay to fail because maybe we can try differently next time other than just like being super ashamed and you're like a failure and you're never going to do anything good and you're going to fail your class and stuff like that, you know, and they don't encourage kids to think differently, you know, and also like they teach you to do like this only this in this way. Like there's only one right way. And I also think that's absolutely wrong when it comes to formal education that they should encourage people to try to think outside of the box more and to maybe try to find solutions in a different way. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's stupid and also that, you know, called stupid and that you don't know what you're talking about. And then, you know how many brilliant people were like really bad at school and called like retarded and stupid. And they actually came out with some pretty good ideas that we all use nowadays and we would not probably, we would not think of our everyday life the same way without their inventions or theories or any other things that they're doing. Yep. Yep. I completely agree with that. And one thing I always like, like I, going off the tuition analogy again, is that whenever I, when I have the, you know, went to college, whatever, and all that fun stuff, I look back and I'm like, okay, college, I think college has a great ROI, so I'm not dissing it, right? But I spent, <laughs> you know, 
you do the math and it's like, okay, each, each semester, I don't know if Europeans know this, but American schools are very expensive. So you need to get a good ROI on this. Yeah. But I would, you know, whatever each class is, I don't know, maybe let's say $2,000 or something. Right. And you know, it's spent $2,000 to take philosophy, which is great. I like philosophy. I like reading about it. I like knowing about it, but it does not really like help me in terms of like business wise. I think it helps me maybe like as a human, but not, not business-wise. And also, if I spent $2,000 taking an accounting class, well, I guaranteed I'm going to lose, quote-unquote, lose that $2,000. I spent it. I spent it on tuition, right? And so for me, I kind of take the philosophy that if I'm going to spend money on something, for example, maybe sending some inventory to the European market so I can learn about the European market, or my big thing was like my first order four or five years ago when I placed my first order. I'm like, okay, this order costs three, $4,000 plus a thousand dollars shipping. We're talking about $5,000. That is about a semester, half a semester, depending on the school, you know, depending on the school you right. go to in cost. I'm like, okay, if I completely fail at this, I am buying myself a semester or maybe half a semester of like international business, <laughs> right? That's fine. Right. I took a class called wasting my money, giving my money to some random Chinese person to import something. And I, you know, I didn't waste it. I bought tuition international <laughs> trade, right? So that mentality that always helps me like not worry about failure. I'm just paying tuition when I make mistakes. Paying tuition, yeah. You know, it's also like, you know, it cost me 700 euros to learn that I have to use a sauna you know, for instance, uh-huh. you know, or like, you know, this is how much I paid for, you know, the tuition course on how to properly get your project manager to do stuff for you and stuff like that, you know. So I really love that, you know, mindset about like paying for stuff, paying for your mistakes. And I think like, you know, mistakes I made and things I've learned have been cheaper than if I went to college and took like an actual, you know, as you said, like a international business. Like when I was in Chicago, I wanted to go to the to Booth Business School. And that's like a 90 grand for a year. Right now, I'm like, yeah, of course, you want to go there because of contacts. And I mean, of course, it's a good thing. But now at this point, I'm like, see, I didn't need a booth business school after all. You know, you can figure things out yourself at some cost, which is cheaper than booth business school. So, <laughs> Yeah. So speaking of learning, what kind of books or websites or anything else do you use to learn about business or maybe just the world in general? Yeah, well, I like to read books, but recently I haven't read anything which was like health manual and stuff like that. I'm more of like a visual type, so I don't like to listen to audiobooks. I like to read books in paper because I can like, I just, I'm old school when it comes to like, you know, paper books, I can underline and like, you know, draw little hearts and stars and stuff like that. And I really like it. And, but basically like, I like Seth Godin. I think it's maybe a little bit too much at some point, but I get some stuff. Like, I absolutely agree with some stuff he's saying. I really like him as, like, a speaker or somebody who I can listen to. But when it comes to just kind of the keeping up with, like, e-commerce and, like, world around us, and I think people are pretty busy. People don't have time to maybe, you know, dedicate, like, three or four hours of reading every day on different blogs and stuff like that. So one of my two favorite, like, uh, newsletter blogs I get, the first one is called The Skim. You can actually, you know, they skim literally like all of the like very important news from the industry for you. And they write it in a very entertaining way. So while you're like drinking your morning coffee or eating breakfast, you can just kind of totally skim through it and you don't lose attention because I easily lose attention. I'm easily distracted and I'm horrible and I just like read every 10th word. But this like the skim kind of really gets me, you know, going and reading till the end. It's really short. 
but you basically get all the info you need. And the second one is called Morning Brew, which is similar to the skim. It's just more about like New York Stock Exchange, you know, what's happening with the automakers. It's kind of a little bit more wider knowledge base, basically, about what's happening around us. Nice. So Seth Godin is the author you suggest, and I love Seth Godin. He's kind of like the pop marketing guru of our time. Yeah, yeah. And he is. He is really good. I mean, you really... And also, like, there's, like, this video with the monk discipline. I really recommend that. It's two hours long, and I think it took me, like, I started in, like, four or five, you know, different days, because I just couldn't, yeah, I'm just like, wait, I need a break from this, you know, because I write down stuff and stuff like that, so you really need to let it sink in, and then, you know, I would always recommend watching it, like, 24, 30 minutes, because it's so much information, it's so much which you have to kind of oh, okay, I want to implement this. And of course, you cannot implement everything he says, you know, and some of the things I, I don't think are even possible. But, you know, I think he's a really good guru, even though I don't like that word because of the Amazon gurus, you know, it's just like, you know. But I really like what he's talking, all his mindset and lifestyle and everything. And I think it's totally achievable. You just have to be persistent and you have to be patient with yourself and you have to make this routine. And I think that's very important, like to have a routine and I also read that, you know, they say that if you do something for 17 days in a row, let's say you wake up in the morning and go for a jog or for a walk for like 20 or 30 minutes, the same time, 17 days in a row, it becomes your habit. It just it feels like if you have forgot to brush your teeth in the morning, something will be terribly wrong. Your body will be like, oh my God, like, you know, I forgot to do something. And you're like, all right, let's go for a walk. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a great place to leave the interview. So we should look to have good habits. We should look to read Seth Godin and we should look to get a translation done by YLT translations. Yana, can you tell us, yeah. Can you tell us one actual thing that Amazon sellers should do today? Amazon sellers who are not happy, for instance, with their profits and sales in the U S market should go to, let's say German market or any other European market and see how many competitors they have over there. And I think a lot of people have never even thought of doing that. And I think they will be surprised with the number of competitors they have. And maybe this is the time because, you know, it's the end of the year and maybe January to start fresh and so clean like the 2020 and maybe to start doing something on other market because the U.S. market is not all there is in this world. I love that. All right. We'll plant that seed. How about get yeah. into Europe in 2020? That's a good kind of like a New Year's resolution that you guys can put on your list. All right, Yana, I want to thank you so much for joining us all the way from London. And I really appreciate you spending your time with us. And it was great chatting. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. And I just wish that more more podcast hosts have like this kind of casual style where you kind of keep it super friendly and I just really hope that a lot of people who will be hearing this got something out of this whole conversation. I try to also bring some value, but also to keep it, you know, interested. And I really like how we talked about, you know, stuff that people deal with, like on daily basis, like, you know, owning a business or, you know, your ups and downs, habits, mistakes you make, because, you know, it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to fail. It's not okay to give up. That's it. Ah, I love that. Let's leave it right there. All right. Thanks, guys, for joining the Zoncom podcast. If you have not subscribed, go ahead and hit subscribe on your podcast player and we'll be in your ears next week. Mm